let our God be praised. Well, praise the Lord. Give Jesus a big hand this morning. He is worthy of our praise. Give your neighbor a high five. Tell him you're looking good. And you may be seated. Well, turn your Bibles this morning, Isaiah chapter 7. As you're making your way there, let me just say to you, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. It has been a great year uh, here at Church on the Rock in our lives. God's watched over us, and we're anticipating the next year to be an even greater year. The, how many know the world is getting darker, and that's when light shines the brightest? And uh, that's why we're encouraging you in January during this Bible challenge with us. We'll have Bible Gods next week. It's an app on your iPhone you can follow for reading. We also do 21 days of fasting and pray, in, in prayer in the m- month of January. So great time after Christmas. Enjoy the holidays, but to focus afresh on what God would do in the new year. Isaiah chapter 7 is where we're going. Two weeks ago, my Christmas message was called A Christless Christmas. If you may recall, I talked about the beautiful lights in Garvin Gardens there, just out of hot springs. Wonderful thing you can do as a family tradition. Of all the lights that were there, no manger seen. It's almost like in our society. Our society has tried to X out Christ. And we've talked about the reasons why. A couple of weeks ago, cultural reasons. We talked about biblical reasons and how we might respond to that. But this morning, we're going to look at a passage in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7 It is what's called a prophecy. A prophecy is a prediction. It's not like going to the fortune teller. It's not like calling a psychic, which I hope you never do either one of those. But it's like, but God speaks through a man or speaks through a woman and gives him some view of the future. And in this prophecy, Isaiah wrote 700 years before Christ was born. Now, that's a long time ago. That's way before the founding of America. If you can imagine when Columbus is sailing the ocean blue in 1492, if you can imagine somebody sitting on the ship with him and they're kind of steering the ship going uh, going west, and somebody said, hey, you know what? When we get over there, one day they're going to have iPhones. One day they're going to have cars that will drive 70 miles an hour, 80 miles an hour, and 75 in Texas. I say praise the Lord for Texas. And then they'd say, what's a mile per hour? I mean, it was so foreign to them that they had no concept whatsoever. Well, it was that long ago, and God is speaking through an individual. And this prophecy has has two vantage points. It's speaking to the people in in their day, but it's also looking ahead to the birth of Christ. Isaiah 7, 13, he said, Hear then, O house of David, the Lord himself will give you a son. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, how many would say, friends, that's miraculous? That is, before the days of artificial insemination, this was the immaculate conception. She'll bear a son, and you'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, there's this first phrase, house of David, that's going to be intertwined through the whole message today. Because I want you to see this message as as a tapestry, as we talk about the first Christmas, that began hundreds of years prior to the birth of Christ. The house of David referred to, of course, David the king and all the kings of Israel, but also to the entire nation of Israel and ultimately to the world. So in this prophecy, God, uh, it was about King, uh, king Ahaz of Judah. They and the, he and the people were afraid because their enemies were about to attack and destroy them. And God wanted to let them know that, hey, look, I'm involved in this. I'm taking care. I'm going to intervene. But superimposed on their situation was a word of prophecy to the entire world 
that a virgin would conceive, bear a son called Emmanuel, God with us. This immaculate conception was what we call God incarnate, God taking on human flesh. Literally, the Bible teaches that somehow God, in the form of Christ the Son, left heaven, came to earth, was born of a woman. A miraculous thing with the purpose to be a rescue mission because only a holy God could fulfill God's requirements to atone for the sin of the people. So that's what we're talking about today. This happened 700 years before. So this morning's message is about the first Christmas. It is about the most important birth in the history of the world. It is the birth of Jesus Christ. And I'll also share with you some, not just historical, factual things, but uh, how to make the Bible real, how to find application. When I read the Bible, I'm looking for several things. I'm looking for accurate historical context. I'm looking for true doctrine. But I'm also looking for how this speaks to me. How can I apply this to my life? Not just in knowledge, but in everyday life, how I'm coping with the things that are going on around me. So I've entitled the message, The First Christmas, and let's step into it. Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 2. There's actually two of the Gospels that talk a lot about the birth of Christ, both Matthew and Luke, and we'll look at both. But Luke chapter 2, as we talk about the first Christmas, no Santa, no elves, no Black Friday sales, no decorated palm trees, but God came to His people. Luke chapter 2 verse 1, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, the most powerful person in the world, and when he spoke, you obeyed. Uh, Caesar said that all the world should be registered. It was a registration for taxation. Verse 3, all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, this is very interesting because for the Jewish people, um, your place in the genealogy, your place in history was, was, was vital. Uh, you might have traveled a bit. Today, you know, most people move 10, 12, 15, 20 times in their life. But they always knew where home was. Uh, God had given the land to the Israelite people. That's why it's such a big deal in the Middle East today. They assigned it through their families. The families went to the different tribes, and every family had a home place. They even had what was called the year of Jubilee. So in the 50th year, all the land would return to its original, uh, to its original owners. Well, anyway, we've got now, they're going to be registered to their own town. Joseph went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth, Galilee is a region like Miller Bowie County, to the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of who? Here's the word again, the city of David. And notice it's called Bethlehem. Why? Because he was of the house and lineage of David. Now, we begin the scripture in those days, and those days meaning the fact that uh, there's a picture here that ordinary people are being controlled by this great king. Sometimes I feel as an American today that what does my voice have to do with anything? Who reads a petition? If I hit a like or something, what difference does anything make because the rich and powerful are ruling the world? What I want you to see in this passage, it was not the Caesar that was controlling Mary and Joseph. Come on, it was God Almighty. And there is an unseen hand that's at work guiding this world. There is a master architect. There is a master orchestrator that is orchestrating the affairs of the world, whether it's Iran and Israel or whether it's the future of America. More importantly, our future, come on, is in the hands of God. 
So uh, the first, what I'll call spiritual lesson that we can glean from this that we'll see unfold is simply this, God is in control. <laughs> Let me say it again. God is in control. He knows what he's doing. Things aren't catching him by surprise. And I can believe, breathe a sigh of relief because I can have faith about the future. I can have hope, come on, and not doubt and fear because God is the one that sits on his throne. Come on, give him a big hand this morning. It is what I see in this unfolding story when a powerful man thought he was in control, but actually God was using him as a puppet or a pawn. Now, let me further this idea. Matthew chapter 1, Matthew begins his gospel, Matthew to the Jewish people, with what's called a genealogy. Uh, you might have even done genealogical research in your family. Uh, and what Matthew did, I'll just read a verse or two. Matthew 1 verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And here it is again, the son of David, David the son of Abraham, Abraham many generations before, both vital to the Jewish race, David the, the model, the paradigm of the Jewish king, Abraham the father of faith. And then he goes on and starts quoting descendants. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, on and on and on, 42 generations. Think about this, 42 generations, and guess where we end up? Verse 16, another Jacob who's the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, of who's called the Christ. Now, I particularly want to speak to you if you're a bit skeptical of the claims of Christianity today. The Bible is predicting, and not just a book that's printed on the printing presses of America, but ancient manuscripts that are found. This book of Isaiah, by the way, the uh, oldest scroll of Isaiah that's ever been found was found in 1948. A shepherd boy there in the Middle East was out throwing rocks like boys would do, and he threw a rock in a cave, and there was a, a sound of something breaking, and it was a clay pot that broke. And lo and behold, they found just, a, just scores and scores of biblical manuscripts, one of which was the scroll of Isaiah, and they found that the scroll of Isaiah, older than any they'd previously discovered, was virtually verbatim. That's what's recorded in our Bibles today. Great confidence to the faith, but what I say to you this morning is not just the rantings of a preacher, but it is something that is historically and verifiable through the archaeologist. 700 years before Christ was born, these words were spoken. And this genealogy, who but God could arrange this family tree to end up with Jesus? Now, the Bible is full of predictions. They're called prophecies. Here's a prophecy that too is amazing that you must consider. Micah the prophet, also about 700 years before Christ was born, predicted the town... Jesus would be born in. Now, I want you to think about this because you remember two weeks ago, we were not supposed to be able to come to church because there was an ice storm supposed to come here. You remember for about three days, everybody was worried going to Walmart, buying this and buying that because we were going to get iced in. And guess what? They couldn't even predict that the ice didn't come to Texarkana. Now, thank God for weathermen and their ability to kind of look forwards and help prepare us, but they're doing their best guess, but God is not guessing. God is predicting and it begins to happen. Uh, Micah 5, 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, and Ephrathah is like a region of the city around it. For example, we say Texarkana and then Miller and Bowie County. But Bethlehem was the city. And Micah said, For out of you shall come one who is to be the ruler in Israel. Who is that? Jesus. How do we know? His coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Which simply means 
this timeless Christ, the one who was and is and is to come, Almighty God, He existed before time began. He's the one that's going to come to Bethlehem to be born. And again, the Bible predicted His birth. Now, Dozens of prophecies predicted the life of Christ, particularly the birth of Christ. These prophecies were not just some abstract, we think we can make this fit. But how many know it's pretty specific when a guy says, in 700 years in this town of Bethlehem, there's a ruler and a ruler of the world is going to be born right here. That's pretty specific. Now, if you're a gambler, or hopefully you're not, but if you were in your older days, there's a professor, uh, Peter Stoner, that did some research. He was a scientist and statistician, and he basically wanted to come up with the odds of one person fulfilling not all the prophecies, but only eight of the prophecies. I want you to think now, prophecies that go back some hundreds and some several thousand years predicting about Christ's birth. And here's basically what he said, and I'll illustrate it this way. He said that the odds of that happening, one man fulfilling those prophecies, are one and with 10 to the 17th power. What is it? One or 10 with 17 zeros behind it. Now, that means nothing to us, but let me see if I can explain it as he did. I want you to think of the chair that you're sitting now, and I want you to imagine that chair and the area under it two feet deep, okay? A bucket two feet deep, and I want you to imagine a silver dollar, and somebody writes on that silver dollar, Jesus. And somehow we fill that bucket with silver dollars that you're sitting on, and we hide that one silver dollar in there. We put a blindfold on you, and so you've got one chance to pull out the right one. Now, how many think you could do it on first try? Nah, so you say, oh, nobody could do that, Pastor. Well, yeah, maybe somebody could. Let's, let's go further. I want you to imagine all the chairs are out of this room, and all the people are out, and we put two feet high of silver dollars in this room. Two feet high over the whole room. We blindfold you. We take one coin, write Jesus on it. We hide it somewhere in this room. We put you outside. You take a stepladder. You come and you're walking on all, all these coins and say, pick that one coin. Do you think you could? First pick. You think you could do it? He said, oh, pastor. Well, here's what the scientist explained to us. He said, this is not 10 to the 17th power. He said, I want you to imagine the state of Texas. I want you to start in East Texas right where we are, and I want you to go as far west as you can. What is that, 12, 14 hours of driving? I want you to go a long ways. I want you to go to the top of the panhandle, and I want you to take another 12, 14-hour drive and go to the port of Houston or even beyond and cover the whole state of Texas in two feet of silver dollars. On one of those coins, I want you to write the word Jesus, and I want you to bury it somewhere. Come on, whether it's in Midland or Houston or Austin or Texarkana or, or in Redwater or Maud, wherever it is, about you bear that one coin, we're going to give you one chance to find that coin. And you're thinking right now, that's impossible. Nobody can do that. Absolutely. Nobody but God. Because, listen, this tells us that God is the one behind this massive orchestration. And if you just want to look at Christianity intellectually, the odds that one man would fulfill these prophecies, come on, God has to be behind it. And come on, what's his name? His name is Jesus. Give him a big hand this morning. So, again, the lesson for us this morning in this is God is in control. God is in control. He knows what he's doing. Therefore, I can face the future with faith and not fear. And when we look at the future, how many know the future can be a pretty dark place in our world today? 
But I'm telling you, friends, when you look at it, you don't just see the nuclear bomb in Iran and Israel. You don't just see our burgeoning deficit. You don't just see diseases that are resistant to drugs, these superbugs that are out there now. You see Jesus on the other side. Come on. You don't see just a funeral procession, but you see the graves opening up because of Jesus Christ. He is worthy of our praise, the all-powerful God. Let's, look at, let's keep reading through the passage. Verse 5. So now Joseph, in obedience, really, in, in guise, the guise of obeying Caesar, but actually obeying God, he comes to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. In other words, they were engaged to be married. But there's an issue here. She's with child. She has a baby. Now, how would you feel if your teenage daughter came home and she said, Dad, I'm pregnant. And your first words are, where's my gun? I mean, I'm going to, you know, who is this person? I'm taking care of him. Actually, I'm taking him out. But then she says, oh, no, 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 Daddy, don't do that. Uh, God made me pregnant. Yeah, right. God made me pregnant. And how would you explain this to all your friends? If you can imagine being ostracized like this, maybe this is the reason that they had to travel alone to Bethlehem. Maybe if they got to their hometown and couldn't find any place in the inn, it's because it was an, what appeared to be an illegitimate pregnancy. I mean, all these are possibilities, but I'm going to focus on this and the supernatural element. And while they're there in Bethlehem, the, tame, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Swaddling cloths, or if you can imagine a towel that you might tear in pieces and wrap this baby. And she had to place him in a manger. In other words, this was an animal trough where you fed animals. Probably some clean straw wrapping in some, uh, some, some towels, as it were, because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, obviously, some uh, angel made a big mistake. Somebody forgot to make the reservation. And it seems like they didn't have money because how I many know if you had enough money, you could find a bed to sleep in. You could find a place to go to. But this is where God chose to come into the world, which says to us there's something about the nature of our God. That Jesus, when he came to the earth, was a humble man. Jesus didn't come to serve, but, I mean to be served, but he came to serve us. And there's a picture of how God came into the earth. Now, but I want to, what I want to focus on in this point as we look for something practical is about Mary's supernatural birth the baby's birth. Mary's pregnancy was not like anything the world had ever seen. No man was involved. This was before the days of artificial insemination. There's no active intercourse. Her pregnancy was a miracle. Now, you and I have been raised in, 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 in the last probably, what, four, five, six, eight generations where science explains everything away. And it's so sad that because science understands how God does it, it then assumes that God didn't do it. But we live in a world that's void of miracles. But I want to tell you, Christianity is replete with miracles. Um, Luke chapter 1, verse 34, here's how it happened. Mary is having a conversation with an angel. Mary, perhaps 16, 17, 18 years of age. And she asked the angel, then how is this going to be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Somehow, not an act of intercourse, but somehow God placed the, 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 the seed of Christ in her womb. The power of the Most High will overshadow you, and the child to be born will you, to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. Not the Son of Joseph, but the Son of God. 
a miraculous birth. But not only was Jesus' birth miraculous, it was the fact that his cousin John the Baptist would be born supernaturally. Elizabeth, you may recall, John the Baptist's parents, uh, she's too old to have children. We'll talk about her. Luke chapter 1, verse 36, the angel told Mary about uh, Elizabeth. Your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. And now, here's what I want you to say the next portion. For nothing is impossible with God. Nothing, say it again, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. The New Century Version says God can do anything. Now, what does that mean to me, Pastor? Listen, the lesson in this is, is that if God can take a virgin and give her a baby, if God can take a woman that's past menopause and too old to have a child and give her a baby, can I tell you, friend, God can take prayer problems in your life that are too big for you to fix. Now, now I want you to think about this. Uh, Mary, of course, as a young child, was just enamored with the thought, was, was how could this be? But it was different from Elizabeth. Elizabeth was an older woman. She and her husband, her husband was a priest in the temple, which means they were part of the inner circle of religious leadership, and they had served God all their lives. But they had lived with this sense of shame. Because, you see, not having a baby was, was viewed uh, with some scriptural backing as a judgment of God. It was not a good thing to have. And can you imagine how, let's say if Mary, if Elizabeth and, and her husband Zechariah were, were married at, let's say, 18, and, and let's say in their 25, and, and people are asking them, when are you going to have a baby? When are you going to have a baby? They didn't have any birth control. It was just, well, we don't know. I mean, we're, we're, we're trying, we're hoping. But how about when they're 30 or 35, and everywhere they go, everybody's got kids but them. And they go, and all the, the kids, all the nieces and the nephews come and jump up on their lap and everything, and everybody says, when are you going to have a baby? And all she knows is she goes home, and she weeps, and she cries, and she prays to God. And she says, God, why, why can't I have a child? Why can't I have a child? What's wrong with me? And she talks to her husband. And they go through their whole life, I guarantee you, with a thought pattern like this. But what was happening, God was waiting for the right time. You see, it came to pass in the process of time that God was going to give her the privilege to give birth to John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. And I'll tell you, my friends, there's a message in this. Nothing is impossible with God. Don't give up and don't quit and don't stop believing. Listen, nothing is impossible. Your retirement is not impossible. Come on. Your child that's been wayward says they hate you and left home and you don't know where they are. God knows where they are. Come on. They can show up on your doorstep one day. That child that's addicted to drugs, that child that stole your wedding ring, that pawned off your precious family silver, that child can repent. Come on. And come home to God. That child can be delivered from drugs. A marriage that's falling apart. Listen, God can bring it back together. I'm telling you, God is the great fixer. God can do what we cannot do. We, you, you may look at your life and you may say, well, I, I'm kind of in a small box here. It's the color of my skin. It's my background. It's my lack of education. It's my multiple divorces. It's this. It's that. It's my time in jail. It's my felony record. I want to tell you, you need to drop the walls of your small box because if God wants to do something in your life, God is big enough and God is able. Come on. God is the one that can take a, a, a virgin and give her a baby, an old woman and give her a child, and God can do something big in your life too. Come on, somebody say praise the Lord. I would say tell your neighbor, God can give you a baby, but don't do that. That could cause problems today. 
Okay, verse 8, let's keep going now. We're going to shift gears and look at some of the other people that were involved. You see on the manger scene up here, there's one what appears to be a boy, a young man with a, a, a lamb on his shoulder. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. I can almost hear Linus reading this to Charlie Brown, can't you? Uh, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Here's a question I'm going to ask you. Why did the angel appear to the shepherds? The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they, as most people in the Bible when this happened, were filled with great fear. Now, a shepherd, his or her job was to care for sheep and goats. Uh, it was an agrarian society. You needed to raise the, the mutton and the goats to, to eat. Uh, you need to drink the milk. Uh, the wool would provide clothing for you. It was a means of selling. But uh, the problem is they were, they were basically what you might call a common laborer. They were somebody that didn't have great skill or education. They were certainly not powerful. They were certainly not wealthy. But here's my question. Why did God pick these people to reveal the Son of God to why didn't God go to town and pick a rabbi? He was a spiritual teacher. Why didn't he pick a priest? Why didn't God pick perhaps the wealthy person in town? Why didn't God pick the banker? Why didn't he, why didn't he pick a, a powerful politician that was aligned with Rome? If you wanted to get something done in America today, you want to be networked to the right people. You want to know who the, up the political food chain. You want to know how to get your exemption from Obamacare. You want to know how to get the government subsidy. I mean, you want to be connected. But, but it's like God ignored all those people and he found shepherds. Now, I'm going to speculate a little bit, and I think I've got some good basis for it. But to the bottom line, we don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us. But we do know the kind of people that get God's attention. If you read the Beatitudes in Matthew and Luke, it would say things like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, that simply means blessed are those that are humble. Blessed are those that realize that they need God, that they can't make it without God. The Bible would also say blessed are those who are poor. And it doesn't, it doesn't uh, uh, make some uh, great value to poverty, but what can happen, the poor can be rich in faith, James tells us. Uh, blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall, they shall see God. Flip side, when we learn about the Pharisees in the Bible, the Bible said they loved money. They were jealous of Jesus. They wanted to kill Jesus. But it seems like God found in the heart of these humble shepherds something that he wanted to bring, this glorious privilege to communicate Christ. I believe I know why. Look at verse 15. Now, the angels again talking to the shepherds. And verse 15 says, When the angels went away, the shepherds said to one another, Boy, wasn't that cool. The angels said to one another, Could you pass me some more of that fried lamb there? It was pretty good. The angels said, Well, now we can go to sleep. No. They said, Let us go over to Bethlehem. We'll come back to this. Let us go to Bethlehem and see the thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Verse 16, They go with haste. They do it quickly. They find Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And here's number two. When they saw it, what did they do? They made known the saying that had been told them about the child. In other words, they began to tell people about Jesus. Number 20, verse 20, the third thing, the shepherds returned. What were they doing? Glorifying and praising God for all they'd seen and heard. So now, let me suggest these three things. Suggest to us maybe why God chose the shepherd and how we might imitate their life. The first thing, 
why he chose these shepherds uh, is, is that they, they, they loved God. God was more important than the sheep. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, they left the sheep. They went away from them. I don't know how, who watched them or if no one watched them, and they immediately began to follow God. Now, isn't that the same thing Peter did when he was called? He left his fishing business. Isn't that the same thing Matthew did as he left his tax collector business? So there's a lesson here is when Jesus becomes more important than anything else in your life, come on, then God can do something big through you. Now, they are going to go back to their sheep, but they're going to go back as transformed people. And that's what happens when you truly become a Christian. Jesus becomes first in every area of your life, and he's more important than, come on, anything else. Now, the second, I'm going to come back to the second thing, but the third thing, they were worshipers. They glorified and they praised God. Uh, how many know that's the spirit of thankfulness? That's why you came to church this morning. This would have been a great morning to sleep in. Come on, it was cold outside. I mean, you know, easy to pull the covers up and turn the TV on. But you came to worship the Lord. But it's the second thing that I want to pause just a minute on because I think there's a great message to us in it. You remember as soon as they, as they saw this, they, they saw Christ, they went and made the saying known to everybody else. In other words, they went to begin to tell people. As soon as they got, well, I guess off duty with the sheep, they went up to somebody, know, maybe the brother or family member, and said, man, the coolest thing happened last night. We saw an angel. No, man, for real. We, 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 no drinking, nothing. An angel <laughs> appeared to us and told us about Christ being born. And we went to the, sa- to the stable. We saw the, the Son of God. I want to tell you, it happened to us. It's the most amazing thing I ever saw. I saw an angel. And, and then I met the Son of God born into the world that changed my life. Did you hear what I just said? I said, I, you're crazy, man. Get out of here. It's like the day of Pentecost. They're drunk with new wine. No, we're not crazy. We've encountered God. Amen. Now, with that little bit of background, what's the greatest controversy going on in America today? <laughs> Duck Dynasty. Come on now. I mean, a bunch, <laughs> a bunch of country guys from Louisiana that even our president says he watches on Air Force One Uh, He said something that has just really caused the world to do this. He was asked, as I understand the interview was back last January, asked by a magazine what he thought about marriage, about sexuality, about right and wrong, and he made some comments that were perhaps a little coarse, but in the midst of it he quoted a Bible verse, almost verbatim, that talked about people that would not inherit the kingdom of God. And it set off a firestorm. Now, let me read your statement that he... Uh, uh, I wish we had the whole day to talk about this. This is a fun one. But, but, but he released a statement in response to the controversy. And here's what he said. He said, I'm a product of the 60s. I centered my life around sex, drugs, and rock and roll until I hit rock bottom and accepted Jesus as my Savior. Now, listen to this next phrase. My mission today is to go forth and tell people why I follow Christ and what the Bible teaches. Now, well, let me say that again. Now, A&E says, oh, we warned him not to talk about his extreme views. But it's all, and can you imagine the money he's going to lose and all that? But all he did was see this show as a platform. Look, you could try as hard as you want to, and you couldn't do that. You couldn't gain that platform in America. It's almost like God took these country boys and lifted them up to have a voice to talk about the Lord. Didn't the Bible say that God takes the foolish things of the world to do what? Confound the wise. But notice what he said. My mission is to tell people about Christ. And granted, he could have said it perhaps in a way that was more easily entreatable. But he's who he is like you're who you are. 
But then he said this. He said, part of the teaching of the Bible is that women and men are meant to be together. Not a PC statement. However, I would never treat anyone with disrespect just because they're different from me. We're all created by the Almighty. And like Him, I love all humanity. We would all be better off if we loved God and loved each other. Now, all the thoughts, the peripheral thoughts that could go around it, didn't He do the same thing the shepherds did? As soon as the shepherds heard the good news, what did they do? Go and tell. And, and what did old Phil Robertson do? Go and tell. And isn't that a great uh, lesson for us today? Go and tell. Now, speak the truth in love. Come on, we're never talking down to people. We don't ever want to be self-righteous. We're not bigoted. How many know we're one sinner sharing with another sinner where they can find bread and relief in life? But isn't that the great mission of life, to tell other people about Christ? Isn't it the very thing that all of us are called to do is to share the gospel of Christ with the world? I'm telling you, friends, it is the essence of being a Christian, and it's the third spiritual lesson that I learned today is that God wants to use our lives to be a witness for Him. My wife believes this so much, she even used a car accident to tell somebody about Jesus. Let me tell you a little story. It's a little funny, but it's a little true story. We're getting ready to go to Rebecca's uh, basketball game a couple days ago and uh, waiting on her to come home. We're going to ride together to New Boston. And she calls me up and she said, somebody rear-ended my car. And, of course, you know, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. She said, the car is okay. Don't worry about it. And, uh, well, anyway, so lo and behold, they exchanged licenses and whatever they did, and everybody's okay. But uh, when it was over, Linnell pulled out an invitation, a Christmas invitation, and said, I'd like to invite you to my church. Uh, we're having some special Christmas services. And the lady said, oh, we've been talking about a church to go to on Christmas, and we may even come. So here, my wife will go to this limit to get somebody to come to church to even be in a car accident. Come on. Because she, <laughs> she so believes in what the message of Christ is about. And I want to encourage you, whether you're the shepherds, or Phil Robertson, my wife, just you, you and I, listen, can tell people how to find the message of eternal life. And Christmas is not about a winter holiday. It's not about Jolly St. Nick. Come on. It's about the Savior of the world who came to give us eternal life. Give the Lord a big hand today. Let's wrap it up here in conclusion. About the first Christmas, our Savior was born. We're back with the shepherds now. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that shall be for all the people and you know why it's for all the people? It's because all the people have the same problem. Sin has come into the world through Adam and Eve many, many, many generations ago, and sin has produced the great destruction we all see. If you look at the guy in the mirror today and wonder who that old man is, well, guess what? It's you, and you're there because of the product of sin. Listen, you're facing one day where you will be no more on this earth because of sin. If you look around today and wonder why people are in the hospital, it's because of sin. Sickness came into the world. It wasn't like that in the Garden of Eden before sin. It's not going to be like that in heaven, but it's here now because of sin. If you wonder why you went through the pain of divorce, listen, I'll tell you, it was because of the sin in your spouse. If you wonder why a tragedy happened, if you wonder why somebody committed suicide, if you wonder why somebody raped somebody, if you wonder why there's wars on the planet today, if you wonder why people lie, 
If you wonder why the poor are neglected, if you wonder why little babies die in parts of the world because they don't have fresh water, come on. If you wonder why people are starving to death all over the world, it's because of sin that's come into the world. It wasn't like that in Eden. It's not going to be like that in heaven. But it's here on this earth now because of sin. And that's why we all need a Savior. And that's why Christmas is good news. And that's why it's so important that we proclaim that message. But the angel went on to say, For unto you, and here's why it's good news, is born this day, the first Christmas. And it doesn't matter if it was December 25th or January 1st. or de- The bottom line is Christ was born. Unto you is born this day in the city of David, there it is again, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now let me close with these three words explaining what Savior, Christ, and Lord mean. The word Christ is a biggie. Jesus, Christ was not Jesus' last name. You know, Jesus was a very common name in their day. So he took the common name of a man, but he took this title of, of Christ. And here's what Christ means. Christ, it comes from the Hebrew word for Messiah. It means king and spiritual ruler. And if you want to walk away with anything about Jesus, remember this phrase. It is the one anointed by God to deliver us from sin. Let me say it again. It is the one and only one anointed by God to deliver us from sin. That's what the word Christ means. Lord means having supreme power and authority. Lord means that this little baby one day grew up to him in, into manhood, crucified, dead, buried, rose from the dead, left his humanity, come on, and began to be once again fully God. And he's coming back one day as King of kings and Lord of lords to judge this place. He is the Lord of all. So he is God's anointed one to save the world. He's Lord of all. And I'll close with this last title. Jesus is the Savior, which means he's the one that can save us, deliver us, can free us from the power of sin. And that's who the angel said he was in Matthew 1.21. Mary will bear a son. You'll call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And that's why we celebrate Christmas, the birth of the Savior of the world. Come on, give the Lord Jesus a big hand today. He's worthy of all our praise. We're going to close this morning in in a, a time of prayer. My prayer for you today is my prayer is that somehow I stay focused in Jesus in the midst of this hectic season. If you're like me, trying to figure out presents, come on, is a pretty big deal. If you're like me, trying to figure out what day you're going to go and see the lights, and if you've got young kids, sit on Santa's lap, and blah, 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 all these things and parties to go to. But could we just join today and say, Lord, help us to pause and see you in the center of what we do. It's my hope for you today in your Christmas celebration that you'll come. I, I'm going to go with my family in Mississippi on Christmas. We've got to go to church with my mom as a Christmas Eve service. I hope you'll come worship the Lord because Christmas, Christ Mass, is the worship of Christ. In our family, I try to read the Christmas story in the midst after the presents are open and everything. I try to read the Christmas story. But I hope all of us will endeavor to keep Christ as Christmas. But I want to close with this question today, and if you could just give me your full attention for another couple minutes. I want to ask you, do you know Him? Do you know Christ as your personal Savior? It's one thing for Christ to have accomplished His work, but it's another thing for me to have appropriated that work in my life. There's an interesting scripture. You see, I was raised in church, and I just thought if you went to church, you were more good than bad, you went to heaven. But it's not true. A Gideon shared with me in the back of the little Gideon's Bible, John 1.12, it's on the screen. 
And it says these words. It says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. If I had a Christmas present for you and I bought it very special and I wrapped it all up and I, I, gave, it to, I, I, I gave it to Tim. Tim, by the way, is, used to be our youth pastor many years ago. We're glad that he and his family are with us today. But if I were to buy this present and be very, very special, knew exactly what you wanted, what you needed, and give it to you, it wouldn't become yours until you what? Received it. See, I didn't know that. I didn't know that receiving Christ involved, we would say that it's a time of prayer, but really it's a time of the heart when you realize your need for God and you realize you're not living a life pleasing God and you're going your own way. And receiving Christ is something like this. It starts with a prayer that says, Lord, I, I know I've not lived the way I should. I've sinned. And I, I need to ask you to forgive me today. And I've been living my life for myself, but I want to turn today and follow you. Today, Jesus, I invite you to come in my life and receive you as my Lord and Savior. I'm telling you, friends, it's life-changing. If you genuinely mean that and you want Christ to come in your life, it's not just you trying to be good but somehow Christ begins to be a part of your life and you have relationship with God and He leads you to become the person He wants you to be. I wonder if you're here today and those words resonate with you. As a boy, as I said, I went to church, but going to church didn't make you a Christian. Surrendering your life to Christ makes you a Christian. And I wonder if you're here today and perhaps it's what you need to do. It's a step you need to make in this Christmas time to invite Christ to be in your life, to receive Him as Lord and Savior. To have him wash your sins away and give you eternal life. I'm not talking about joining a church. All we are today is the one telling you where you can find the same fresh bread that we found. Relationship with Christ. Maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor, I used to walk with God, but I've just got off track. But today I want to get back with God. I want to start this Christmas following him. And if that's you this morning and you say, Pastor, I need to get my life right with God. I want your prayer this morning. I want to turn my life to Christ. I want to be saved. I need my sins forgiven. Give us a chance to pray for you. If that's you this morning and say, Pastor, pray for me. I want to give my life to Christ. I want you to raise your hand just real quickly so I know who you are. Say, pray for me. God bless you, pal. Leave the lights on a minute. I can't see. And God bless you over here. Give them a hand. God bless you too. Somebody else today. Say, pray for me. God bless you, dear. We'll pray for you. God bless you. God bless you, buddy. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you, honey. I want, I want to put my trust in this, my Savior. God bless you, pal. God bless you. God bless you. Anyone else today, say, pray for me. I'm today. God bless you, dear. Give her a big hand. Someone else today, pray for me. God bless you, honey. It's never too early to turn your life to Christ. Someone else say, pray for me. I want to give my heart to Jesus Christ. Here's how we're going to close. I want you to stand to your feet. We'll close with one song and be dismissed. But I'm going to have our prayer team come around the altar. And I want to invite you to just raise your hand to come and let us pray for you and give you some things to help you in your journey to Christ. If you need prayer for anything this morning, I want to encourage you, come let us pray for you. It could be sickness in your body. It could be you're going home for Christmas and there's going to be problems. Whatever it is, God can help your friends, but let us pray. Let me invite you now that lifted your hand. Why don't you lead the way and let us come pray for you? Come on, begin to sing, Pastor. Come on, let us pray for you. The many that lifted your hands, give them another hand as they're coming today. Let us pray for you now. As you make your stand for Christ today, your public confession. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I confess you before the Father. But if you deny me before men, I'll deny you. Come, let us pray for you today. Making your step to Christ. Come, let us pray for you. Whether you lifted your hand or not. 
If you need prayer for anything, you come and let us pray for you today. Come on, church, let's sing it. Come, let us adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him. God bless you, dear, as you come. Others that need to be in this altar, come make step to Christ today. Let us pray for you as you make your step to Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Sing it one last time. I love you. Yes.